we're seeking to understand. And we went through the phrase, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall. We took that all as kind of one piece. That's one thing that goes together. And we looked at other places in Scripture where that shows up. And so that answers the question, what's the first thing you do when you want to find this out? You look at the context. So we've done that. We look at the context, and then we look up other places in Scripture where these phrases show up. And we went through it in long detail. And my goal in doing that was, uh, Cliff told me at the end of last week, he's like, you, you almost persuaded me to be an amillennial. But my goal is not to persuade you to be amillennial or premillennial or postmillennial or panmillennial or anything else. My goal here is to just get you to see how Scripture uses these phrases and how when you read this phrase, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and it may sound like some cataclysmic event, but that's not necessarily required in the text, that this can mean something other than what it appears to mean at the surface. And the way we figure out what this means is we go to other places in Scripture and see how it's used. And we did that. We did that with a dozen passages. And what we found was, lo and behold, they're all used the same way in each one of those, and it's used exactly the same way it is here. And we determined what this means, is what this is talking about, is the destruction of a nation, right? So we need to remember our hermeneutical principles as we go through things. Remember the context is the most important. Then the second would be Scripture interprets Scripture, analogia scriptura, right? You want to find out what something in Scripture means? Look up other places in Scripture where it shows up. You do those two things, and most of the time, you will get it right. And it's not that hard. It's just time-consuming, and you need to do the work to get it done. Okay? There are other scriptural principles that we use before, and we went through in other ones. The literal principle, the grammatical principle, the historical principle, and then, of course, always the practical principle, which means is how does this apply to me? Um, but this passage in particular, we're just focusing on analogia scriptura, remembering the context and scripture interprets scripture. And we don't want to forget that. The other thing I'd like to remind you of is that we went over that story of the widow's might, where a widow comes to the temple and she gives everything she has to live. And one reason why I wanted to go through that, and I went through it and I forgot to remind you of that last week, is the reason I went through the widow's might with you is to show you that if you look up different commentators and what they say about that, the great majority of them get it wrong. There are some that get it right, but the great majority get it wrong. And one thing I want you to see and remind you of is that just because your favorite commentator may be on these verses in Matthew 24, or maybe it was on the widow might, maybe they get it wrong. Don't be afraid to go against what they're saying, because we looked at the widow's might, and I think we all agreed at the end that we had come up with the right interpretation, even though most commentators didn't. Um, even Mrs. White came up to me and said, I've taught that passage wrong. <laughs> she told me today, I'm starting to think about calling up old Sunday school students who are 35 years old and tell them, I taught you something wrong. But it's just a matter of going through the context. And back with the widow's might, the big thing that made it obvious what the passage was was looking at the context. And so when we're going through Matthew 24 here, we always remember the context and what the context is showing us. And when we come to phrases like this, like the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, or see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky, or the one we're going to look at today, which is 
a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds. Those phrases may seem like they're about something else at first, but we can't forget the context, right? So what the first thing we should do is instead of looking to see how we can fit these phrases in with what we think they mean and try to do hermeneutical gymnastics and make them fit and force them to fit with what they appear to mean, we should first look, how does this fit within the context? How does a phrase like that fit within the context of Matthew 24? Of course, we look back at Matthew 23 and look forward into Matthew 25 and see what they say. And we did that. Um, So I'm not going to take the time to go over all of that again, although I am going to give a brief review of what we've covered here. So we looked at the context of Matthew 24 in our verses, and it was when the disciples came to Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 1, and said, um, and they asked, tell us what will happen. When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And the question that was about was when when Jesus said, truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And that was about the temple. And then that was also in the context of Matthew 23. So what was Matthew 23 about? Matthew 23 is about Jesus scolding the scribes and the Pharisees for failing to keep God's law. They had made their own rules and their own laws, which they kept, while neglecting to follow God's law. And Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees, You brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? And he tells them that he's sending them prophets and wise men, some of them they will kill and crucify, the flog in the synagogue. And then he says, Upon you will fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And then he says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So that's the context of this question that the disciples ask, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? When will the destruction of the temple happen? And then that's when we come after a few other verses, which I'm not going to cover, but that's when we come to our passage in Matthew 24. And the first phrase we looked at, so there's three phrases here we were looking at. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And we looked at, one of the things we looked at was Isaiah 13, a passage about Babylon, and those same phrases are there. Matthew 13:30, talking about Babylon, an event that happened in the past, says the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. There's our phrase, right out of Matthew 24. It's because Matthew 24 is qu- quoting Isaiah 13, and Isaiah 13 is about an event that happened in the past, the destruction of Babylon. Okay. We also looked at, and then after that we looked at verse 30, and then appear, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the land will mourn. And about that, what I didn't read last week, uh, Ken Gentry declares, he writes this in um, one of his books, He Shall Have Dominion. It says, The final collapse of Jerusalem and the temple will be the sign that the Son of Man, whom the Jews rejected and crucified, is in heaven. The fulfillment of his judgment demonstrates his heavenly position and power. This causes the Jewish tribes of the land to mourn. Through these offenses, the Jews were to see the Son of Man coming in his judgment. 
And don't forget Matthew 24, 34, just a couple verses after, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. So Jesus is declaring that the judgment he's talking about will take place while the people he is talking to are still living. And then, so that is up through, halfway through verse 30, and then we came to the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. We looked at what that meant. We looked at clouds and how are clouds used in reference to God in Scripture. And we looked at Daniel 7. And I'll read Daniel 7 for us. Daniel 7 says, Daniel 7 verse 13 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So we see in Scripture, and we looked at some other places, that coming on the clouds is figurative language describing God's sovereignty over all creation. You see that in Daniel, and you saw it in the other passages that we looked at. Um, if you have your notes from last week, you can look those up. But clouds are often used in Scripture to symbolize God's presence, his glory, and his righteous judgment. So in Matthew 24, Jesus is not saying that his hearers would literally, literally see him coming on a cloud. We're not going to see Jesus riding on a cloud. This is figurative speech. And Jesus is telling them that he is God, is what he's telling them. And the Jews clearly understood what coming on the clouds meant. Okay. That's my review, what we've covered before with Matthew 24. Now we're going to start uh, something new, new passages, and we're going to keep looking at this phrase, coming on the clouds. And so the question is, how are clouds, or coming on the clouds, that phrase, or how are clouds used in Scripture? How are they used in other places in Scripture? So the first one we'll look at today is Ezekiel 30. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 30. So the first way we saw clouds being used was was to show God's sovereignty, that God is in the clouds. God's righteousness, his sovereignty over all creation, that's how clouds are being used last week. Now we're going to look at something a little different here about how clouds are being used. Ezekiel 30, verses 1 through 4. Cliff Montry, you have that? Well, who's this passage about? Egypt, right? This is about an event that happened in the past. Notice what verse 3 says. For the day is near, indeed, the day of the Lord. So we're talking about a day of the Lord, and we talked about that before. The day of the Lord is judgment, right? Judgment is coming on Egypt. And what does he say about it? It will be a day of clouds. There's something interesting. What's Matthew 24 about? (laughs) We're talking about judgment of Israel, right? So here this matches. We see in Scripture clouds being used for days of judgment, days of clouds. Um, 
Go to Joel 2. We looked at Joel 2 before. But I want you to see something again. So in Joel 2, the one we read it last time, what we were looking for was the phrases about the sun and moon growing dark and the stars falling. That's what we were looking for. And we found that, if you look in Joel 2, we found that in verse 10, right? Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, and the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. But let's notice something else about Joel chapter 2. We'll read Joel 2, verses 1 and 2. Dan, do you have that? (laughs) <laughs> oh, I, I skipped Nahum. Well, I'll, I realize I skipped Nahum. I'll go back to Nahum here in a minute. <laughs> I got ahead of myself, sorry. <laughs> Dale, you got it? Okay, so here again we have, remember in Joel 2, that's where our phrase is, the sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will lose their brightness. And again we have, in verse 1, the day of the Lord is coming. And how does he describe the day of the Lord? A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So often clouds are used in reference to coming judgment. You see that? Okay, go to Nahum. I, sorry, I missed Nahum. <laughs> Chapter 1. Yeah, one, two, three, you got it, Dan. So again, here we see judgment coming. And who on Nahum 1, who is judgment coming on? Nineveh. And in Joel 2, I forgot to mention, we had covered it before, but Joel 2 was about judgment coming to Israel. It was in Zion and inhabitants of the land. But Nahum, here we have judgment coming on the land of Nineveh, right? And then notice what it says. The Lord is, Lord, Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In the gale and the storm in his way, and the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. So again, we have a day of the Lord. God is coming in judgment against Nineveh. And we have clouds mentioned here. And the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. So we see clouds used 
for God's sovereignty and clouds talking about God's judgment on a nation. You see that? So what we covered last week is, I mentioned it last week, I'll mention it again, that there, in addition to the second coming of Christ, so there's the second coming of Christ that's a future event, but there is a day of the Lord or a coming of the Lord in judgment. Another sort of coming. And this is the providential coming of Christ in historical judgments. In the Old Testament, clouds are frequently employed as symbols of God's divine wrath and judgment. Often God is seen surrounded with foreboding clouds, which expresses unapproachable holiness and righteousness. God is often poetically portrayed in certain judgment scenes as coming in the clouds to wreak havoc or wreak historical vengeance upon his enemies. And then we see that again in Matthew 24. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. One more. Isaiah 19. And then we'll be done with clouds. Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19, verses 1 through 4. Quentin, you have that? Who's this about? Pretty obvious here. Egypt. Yeah. Seven times in four verses, Egypt or Egyptians is mentioned. It's pretty obviously obvious this is about Egypt. No question. Okay? So here we have judgment coming on Egypt, an event that happened in the past. And what's that phrase in verse 1? The oracle concerning Egypt, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. So here again, judgment on a nation, and it's described as the Lord coming on a cloud. And in our, in our passage in Matthew 24, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. I hate to beat it to death. I'm just trying to make it obvious here. When you look these things up, it's not hard to figure out. It's pretty obvious. You read these phrases over and over and over again, and in each place they're being used the same way. And then we get to the New Testament, and of course, right, they're used some way different. No, (laughs) it's the same. Jesus is quoting Old Testament scripture. The Jews knew it. They knew it by heart. They knew it backwards, forward, and inside out. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Okay, then we come to the next phrase. Uh, Now we're moving on. Matthew 24, verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Again, this appears at first to be some cataclysmic event, right? Something the whole world is involved, everybody everywhere, it includes everybody, right? How does God use these phrases in other places in Scripture? We're just, we're going to do it again, (laughs) okay? 
First thing we're going to look at is how are trumpets used? What was the purpose of a trumpet? Does anybody remember off the top of her head? What are, the, what are trumpets used for in Scripture? This is something we should know. There's more than one answer here. What are trumpets used for in Scripture? Call to worship, right. Call to the gospel. What else were trumpets used for? I, can, I thought of two right off the top of my head. One was a call to worship. The other one was going to war. That was the other one I thought of. Okay? So in both places, though, the trumpet is used for what purpose? Gathering people together. It could be for war. It could be for worship. Um, but the trumpet was used as a call to gather people together, right? So let's look at that. Um, Numbers 10 is where we find that. Numbers 10, we'll read verses 1 through 3. Wade, do you have that? Okay, so trumpets were used for gathering people together. Whenever the trumpet was blown, what were the people to do? Shall meet you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They even had a meeting place. But that was a gathering of people together. The trumpet blew, people would gather together. Okay. Go to Zephaniah 1. Zephaniah 1. Al, do you have that? Verses um, 14 and 16. Sorry. Zephaniah 1, verses 14 and 16. 14 through, 14 through 16. Again, what are we talking about here? So similar, it's a theme here running, right? Each of these passages we're looking at, most of them anyway, what are they talking about? We're talking about judgment here, right? Talking about destruction and judgment. The great day of the Lord, right? And notice in verse 15, again, it's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Again, we have clouds being used in reference to judgment. And notice the next verse, verse 15. A day of trumpet and battle cry, gathering people together. The trumpet is for a battle cry, gathering people together. And here, it seems it's for war against the fortified cities and the high corner tower. Okay. Go to Jeremiah 4. Jeremiah chapter 4.
Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Cliff, I think we're back to you. Okay, so what's the trumpet being used for here? Sorry, it's obvious questions here, right? What's the trumpet being used for? We're gathering people together, right? Notice what are they being gathered for this time, though? What do we see here in Jeremiah 4? The, the trumpet is blowing, cry aloud, assemble, for what purpose? Go to the fortified cities, right? We're talking about people being rescued, Right? They're escaping judgment that's coming. So the trumpet is being used to gather people together so they can escape from coming judgment. Do you see that? Go to the fortified cities, raise a flag towards Zion, take refuge. Do not stand still, for I am bringing evil from the north and a great destruction. So trumpets were calling people to take refuge, to escape. It was a call to... For them to be rescued. This is how they're going to be rescued. The trumpet would call and they'd get out. Go to four to five cities, okay? This is starting to look like something that fits in Matthew 24. Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27, verses 12 through 13. Dan, you got that? So here we have a trumpet being blown. For what purpose again? Coming together. This time they're coming together for worship. Where are they coming from? Land of Assyria and those in Egypt. So it should tell us something. What is this? What are we talking about? When did, the, when, did, when did the Israelites, or when did God's people end up in Assyria and Egypt? Yeah, so times of judgment. When the land was, when the people were taken into exile, right? They were taken where? Assyria, and some escaped and went to Egypt, right? So this is about return from the exile, right, of Israel, Right? Judah was taken to Babylon. Right? So this is talking about the return from exile. Right? And a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord at my holy mountain in Jerusalem. Okay? Let me ask you this. Can this be a literal trumpet? 
You think there's a trumpet that can blow that can reach Assyria and Egypt all at once? Or is this an expression that simply means God gathering his people together for a purpose? Okay, now we come to Matthew 24. Hopefully this is starting to make sense. And it says, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Let me read you what John Calvin says about Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27, we just read about exile and people returning and a great trumpet being blown. He says, The Jews were scattered and dispersed in such a manner that they could not easily be gathered together and formed into one body. Therefore, he shows that this dispersion will not prevent them from being restored to a flourishing condition. This was afterwards fulfilled, fulfilled, for the Jews were gathered and brought back, not by a multitude of horsemen and chariots, not by human forces or by swords or arms, as Hosea states, but solely by the power of God. So what this is showing, the great trumpet being blown, is God gathering his people together, not necessarily by a literal trumpet, But this is God's power bringing his people together. Okay, so we could say like today. A great trumpet has blown and God today in this place has gathered his people together from the four winds. We have people coming from the north, from Cement City. We have people coming from the south, from Toledo. People coming from the east, from Dundee. People coming from the west, from Hudson. From the four winds, God has blown his trumpet and has brought together his people today. We could say that if we're using biblical language. Does that make sense? Starting to understand what this means? It doesn't necessitate a literal trumpet. So, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And I think that's what we're referring to here, is that God is rescuing some of his people, his elect, the remnant, from the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. What he's talking about here is you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory in judgment, and he will send forth his angels, a great trumpet, and God will gather together his elect, his true people, the remnant, the people, the ones that are going to be saved, and he will gather them together for the point of rescuing them from the coming judgment. Does that make sense? Hopefully we've opened up Matthew 24, and we see it in a way that you guys, you haven't seen it before. Um, Pastor DeLine told me long ago before I started this that some people might have trouble with this as I went through it. Uh, He was correct. Some people have had trouble with this. That's one reason why I went through this in so much detail. We went through so many scripture passages. I wanted to hopefully you to see how clear it is how these phrases are used in other places in scripture. And even though you maybe have we're taught something different before. I'm hoping you can keep an open mind to looking at Scripture and letting Scripture speak for itself and seeing how Scripture interprets Scripture and Scripture uses Scripture. These, those two hermeneutical principles about context and Scripture interpreting Scripture are so important that when you get those right, generally the passage will interpret itself. You can see how passages come together and how they fit within the context when you do those two things. So that ends our study on biblical symbolism and hermeneutical principles. Um, there's one more note in here, and I'll take the rest of the time that I have talking about one more thing that has to do with this. Um, but that's the last of the scripture verses I was going to go through. Um, 
And then next week, Dan's teaching again, and he's going to teach for a few weeks. But um, this basically ends our study here, what I was covering in the Sunday school. Hopefully it was helpful to you. It was fun for me going through it with you. <laughs> I had really good conversations with, with most of you afterwards. Uh, it's neat for me to see how what I'm teaching you and what you're, it's, you're getting it and you're understanding and you ask me questions and that's what I love is talking back and forth and, and learning and studying scripture and going through this with you has been a lot of fun for me anyway. So here, one more thing. Let's talk about um, symbolism in scripture. Um, and this, there's a view that's very prevalent and what it says is that everything in scripture is symbolic. And some people say, um, I'll quote Austin Fair, who, who, who mistakenly says, it is not necessary to get behind the symbols to a non-metaphorical understating of the facts. He says the images illuminate themselves. I don't know if that's like osmosis kind of thing. Somebody says a symbol and you should immediately know what it means. But that's kind of what, he, that's what he's getting at. But he's not the only one. Uh, Philip Barrington errantly says, Many people try to interpret the revelation as if each detail of the vision had a definable meaning, which could be explained in so many words. He says commentators like that are rationalizers and they're deficient in the mystical sense. So is that really true? Is everything in Scripture symbolic? Are the symbolism, is the symbolism in Scripture not able to be interpreted exactly with exact prose? Okay, is it really true that symbolic language in Scripture can't be explained in so many words? And that any commentator who does so is deficient in the mystical sense? So I want to draw your attention. We don't, I don't even think we'll take the time to turn there, but I want to draw your attention to like Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is about a parable where, where Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed seed in a field. But while he was sleeping, the enemy came in and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. You remember the parable. I don't think I need to go over it. You guys know the parable. The wheat and the tares grew up together. Somebody comes to the master and says, look, you sowed bad seed. And he says, no, the enemy did this, right? Let's wait till the end. We'll harvest it all together. Throw the tares in a pile to be burned. We'll put the wheat in my barn. Well, what happened after that? Then he left, Jesus left, the crowds, and, and went into the house. And his disciples came to him privately and said, Explain to us the parables of the tares of the field. And Jesus said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. As for the good seed, they are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. What's Jesus doing? He's explaining his symbolism in literal, plain language. Every time we come to symbolism in Scripture, it can always be explained in plain, literal language. That's what Jesus did. He did it with the parable of the soils, right? A man went out and sowed seed. Some fell on rocky ground. Some fell on fell among the thorns. And some fell on good soil. And the disciples came to him later and says, explain this to us. And Jesus said, this is exactly what it means. And he explained it in literal language. Symbolism can always be explained with clear, literal statements. And the job of the Bible expositor is to do exactly that. When a preacher or teacher teaches on a passage with symbolism, he explains it in clear, literal language. 
Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 25, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. Of course, Jesus' statement there doesn't make any sense if you can't explain the symbols in clear, literal language. Scripture is not ambiguous. It always has a clear, definable meaning. It can always be explained with non-figurative language. Otherwise, you can make Scripture say whatever you want it to say, and that's the problem. That's the rub, right? The, The people who say you can't explain the symbolism, you can't explain exactly what it means in literal language, what they're doing is they're giving themselves license to make it say whatever they want it to say. If scripture can't be explained, if the symbolism can't be explained in clear literal language, you can make them say whatever you want them to say. God's word is truth. Scripture always conveys clear literal truth. And so biblical symbolism always conveys clear literal truth. Scripture is God's revelation to us, and it was meant to be understood. But it takes time, and it takes effort. As we've seen here in Matthew 24, it took us a lot of time and a lot of effort to go through it. But it can be understood. Gordon Clark says, The theory of metaphor, parable, or symbolism, as it holds that literal language is impossible, naturally denies the truth expressed in metaphor, naturally denies that the truths expressed in metaphor can be expressed literally. Sometimes authors try to show that poetry and symbolism lose value when attempts are made to state their meaning in prose, meaning literal speech. And this failure in translation is taken as evidence for the general theory of symbolism. Okay? Then Gordon Clark goes on to say, the symbol is merely a surrogate for something else. And what we want is the real thing and not the symbol. The point of the symbol is to show you something and to teach you something. If you don't understand the symbol, you can look it up and find out what it means. And the job of the Bible, Bible expositor is to do that and explain it in clear, literal language. Gordon Clark also says, he says, the scriptures contain metaphors, figures of speech, symbolism, for the scriptures are addressed to all men in all situations situations in which their attention needs to be aroused and their memory facilitated, as well as situations which plain information must be conveyed. But since symbolic language and metaphor depend on the literal meaning, the most intelligible and understandable expressions are to be found in the literal statements. Right? Okay? I'm looking for one more thing here. For example here, Scripture also often gives historical events, right? John 6, 1, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's not meant to be taken symbolically. Theological propositions, and we know that God causes all things to work to good for those who love him. Romans 8, right? That's not symbolic at all. That's meant to be literal. Didactic instruction. James 1, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. No symbolism there, right? Most of Scripture is meant to be taken literally, not symbolically. But where it is symbolic, it can be explained in clear, literal language.
And that's why Jesus explained his parables to his disciples, so that his disciples would understand. So an appropriate question to ask is, if the literal statements are more intelligible and understandable than the symbolism, then why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, that's a good question. Why did Jesus speak in parables if the literal statements were more understandable? Well, think about what he did, right? He spoke in symbols to the general crowd. But then what did he do later with his disciples? He sat them down, the people he knew would understand, and he explained it to them in literal language. So I'll read you this. This is what I'll leave you with from Mark 4. Mark 4, verses 10 through 12. As soon as he was alone, Jesus was alone, and his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not, and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise they might return and be forgiven. God has opened the eyes of some and not others. It's the way God works. God's election, right? But there are symbolism in Scripture, but not everything is symbolic. But where there is symbolism, if you do the work, you look at the context, you look up other places, it can be understood. And that's the point that I wanted to get across. The Scripture is God's truth, and with a little work, a little study, we can determine its meaning. All right, any questions? All right, I'm done a little early, but that's okay. I was a little late last week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the time that we could spend studying your word. Thank you for making your word clear to us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, our helper, who comes alongside of us and helps us to understand these things. Without your spirit, we would be lost, completely unable to understand your word. But you've opened our eyes. You've rescued us. You've chosen us to be adopted as your son. And as your sons, you teach us. You open our eyes to your word. You help us to understand it. And then you give us the power through the Spirit to follow it, for our lives to change, for us to understand what you have for us in this world. And we thank you for that. We worship and we praise your holy name for that. And may our worship be glorifying to you. Thank you for this time of together of study. Uh, And I pray that through the rest of the day, you would be with us as we worship that your word would go forth in truth and power and you would sanctify us in your truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.